So, I've got a younger brother, and my younger brother works for NASA. If you ever want to know how little you know about stuff, have brunch with your brother who works for NASA. Just a, a tip. My brother's not one to just opinionate. He's not one to just try and impress others. He's this humble, brilliant man who happens to have a deep knowledge of how the cosmos works. Back when the space shuttles were a thing, Ben was on the launch team. And there's a reason why rocket science is the reference point when they say it's like, not like rocket science because rocket science is rocket science. Creating an environment that can take a human being and transport them through space and get them back alive, that takes a lot. It takes a lot. It's breathtaking. Well, I had just seen a movie on TV in my basement about a guy who got left behind in Mars. So I asked my brother, hey, did you see this movie that I watched in my basement about this guy that went to Mars? And he said, of course. Of course, the way where he saw it was at the Kennedy Space Center in a private showing in their IMAX. And sitting a couple rows in front of him is Buzz Aldwin, one of the first two people to set foot on the moon. So that was his context for seeing that movie that I saw in my basement. And as we're talking about these things, about life and all of this, you know, he said what it would take to just keep someone alive on Mars, it's breathtaking. Just trying to get a fix for the radiation he said, you'd, you'd basically have to bury them under the ground just to protect them from just the radiation, just that one thing. And then that led to a conversation about the Earth's magnetic field and how unique it is. And if just that one thing, our magnetic field, wasn't as it is, life wouldn't exist. And in passing, just in passing, he said this. He wasn't trying to make a statement. He wasn't, you know, preaching, right? He just made a statement. He said, a lot needs to happen for life to exist. A lot needs to happen. Well, what made this conversation all the more amazing was the context, the context of this conversation. Last Saturday was my mom's 80th birthday, and we're having brunch on what was once the Studensky family farm. And if you can just picture this, it was a gorgeous day day. The sky was blue. There's just a couple clouds in the sky. There's a large open field where we used to grow hay. There's this huge wooded area with a valley that runs through it. And then we've got these buildings. You've got the old farmstead with the farmhouse, the big red barn, the classic metal windmill, big old silo, host of, of uh, sorted sheds. You know, I've never seen a 30-acre plot quite like this one. Well, our family doesn't own the farm anymore. When my father died, we had to sell it. And the new owners, David and Gretchen, they sunk a million dollars into the barn and the chicken coop to create this living space where they now live. It's a really unique space where they live and they host family and friends and guests from all over. And they were hosting us that day. They were hosting us. And we're sitting on this patio. It used to be a side shed. If you, some of you know from farms, you know side sheds. It was a side shed. Now it's a patio overlooking the field and overlooking the woods. And they had this amazing brunch for us. Salmon, salads, breads, just, it was unbelievable. And it was good. It was good. 
It was as if we had returned to that garden that we read about last week, if you were here. It was good. A lot needed to happen for that much good to exist. So much so that the brightest minds on the planet today have yet to agree on a plausible explanation for how life began. Some have gone as far, I'm not making this up, some have gone as far as to theorize multiple universes just to move the needle from mathematically impossible to ridiculously inconceivable. They needed multiple universes to move the needle that much. Well, I want to encourage you right now to take out your green insert and take a look at the back, actually, the back of this. On the back where it says the creation account. Because what we did last week, we read through all of Genesis 1. And we saw in Genesis 1 that there was a God who in the beginning took what was formless and he formed. And then he took what was formed and he took that which was empty and he filled it with what? With good things. Something that he did, that, that thing that he did, it makes rocket science look like cow hunting. And that it was, it was necessary that he did this to create an environment that could sustain life and sustain us as we travel through space together. But something happened after that. Something happened. And we still feel the effects today. As beautiful as the farm was on that day, there was a lot that testified that there's not just good, there's also not good in this world as well. Ticks, gnats, mosquitoes, they were waiting to ambush as we walked into the woods. Oak wilt was threatening the beautiful oak grove, the canopy above. Buckthorn, anyone ever dealt with buckthorn? Buckthorn was threatening the fragile plants below. And this wasn't just like a, hey, plants need water and care. This wasn't like, hey, a building needs a fresh coat of paint. This is different than that. It was as if an enemy, it was as if an adversary was trespassing on that sacred ground. It was as if what had been blessed was now cursed. And what we saw on the farm, this is something that all of us see. If we walk around with open eyes, isn't it? We can see good and we can see not good. Things aren't as we know they should be. Amen. And if you find that problematic, you're not alone. In a world that has so much good, how does the not good get here? If there truly is an all-powerful, all-knowing creator, why is there so much toil? Why is there so much pain? Why is there so much decay and sickness and evil and death? And if you've been around here for any length of time, you know my story. You know, and you probably know where I'm going with this right now. By far the most painful of all the signs that all was not as it should be on the farm was the fact that my dad wasn't there with us. That cancer took his life in 1989. May I present to you that our world bears witness to the testimony of Scripture. Genesis 1 and 2. This world is good. This world is good. What we're going to look at today is the not good coming in. That's where we're going today. Genesis chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Genesis chapter 3, verse 
1. I want to let you know, too, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to go home with one today where you can read these things for yourself. In fact, we encourage you, please read these things for yourself. I had a great uh, story happen today, or not today, this week. So I'm in the office on Thursday. I'm going down to work on some stuff where we have our copier. And, and this volunteer is down there, and, and she said, Chris, can I tell you a story? I said, sure. She said, so you challenged us to read through Genesis. And, I, and I'm doing that. I started with Genesis 1. I've been working my way through. And she said, this week, right after I'd read Genesis 1, this woman comes up to me and she said, hey, did you know that Jesus was one of the created beings? And it says so in Genesis. And because she had read Genesis 1, she was able to say, can you show me where? Could that woman show her where? No, because it doesn't say that in Genesis 1. She knew that because she had read it herself. We want to encourage you all, read it for yourself. Just a chapter a day. All right, here we go. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Let's just, just the first verse first, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go from there. Okay, so now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. All right, let's talk about this. Right away, we got a talking snake. Let's just call that out right now, okay? In the modern world, in the modern world, we lean back from a story like that, don't we? We say, okay, this is obviously a myth. In the ancient world, they would have leaned in. Why would they have leaned in? Because the serpent was a powerful symbol in the ancient world. Serpents were significant symbols. They represented, hear this, both wisdom and death. Interesting. Both life and chaos. In chapter 2, Adam, the chapter that comes before this, Adam had been given the task of guarding the garden. The fact that a serpent was in that garden and had access to his wife would have had the early readers or early, wouldn't have been readers, most of them at that point, the early hearers of this would have been attuned to that. They would have been listening. They would have been on edge. The serpent is described with a word that we translate as crafty or cunning in our Bibles. What doesn't translate well is the wordplay. I didn't know this until we dug into the text here this week. In the very last verse, if you had a Hebrew translation of the Bible, in the very last verse of chapter 2, there's a word that's used to describe the first humans. It, the word we translate as naked. It sounds like the word for crafty. So chapter 2 ends with the humans in a state of nakedness. Then right away there's wordplay in, in this next account here as the serpent comes in and he's cunning. And what we see as this unfolds is that the crafty serpent exploits the human nakedness. He knows where we're vulnerable. And he still does that today, doesn't he? Can I get an amen to that? He knows where we're vulnerable. He knows where our loved ones are vulnerable. By the time we get to the book of Revelation, the serpent's true nature and more of the backstory has been revealed. If we flipped all the way to the book of Revelation, we'd find this, Revelation 12, 9. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient what? The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. He is the what? He's the deceiver of the whole world. If you are one of the original hearers, you don't know this yet. As is the case in a great drama, it unfolds, and we learn more and more and more about this serpent as time goes on. 
In the Old Testament, we've only got hints of who this is. More is revealed along the way. In theological terms, we call that progressive revelation, if you ever heard that phrase before. This is interesting. The word Satan is one of the few words in English that has a Hebrew origin. In the Old Testament, Satan's not a name. It's not a name. It's a word. It's a word that means one who opposes or to oppose. It can be a verb or it can be a noun. In Psalm 38:20, King David describes people who Satan him because he follows after what is good. And as he's following after what is good, there's people who are Sataning him, opposing him. They're his adversaries. And David himself is described as a Satan to the Philistines in 1 Samuel 29, 4, because he's an adversary to the Philistines. As I was doing this word study, I remembered an Old Testament passage in Job, and I'm like, ah, yeah, wait, you're saying this, but let me fact check you, because in the book of Job, it refers to him straight up as Satan, capital S, as in the name. So I looked up Job, went to Job, Job chapter 1, verse 6, aha, I've got you, it says this, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, capital S, name versus title, also came among them, but what comes after what do you see on right after Satan there? A little what? A little footnote. This is one of the reasons you guys get a study Bible. In fact, get a couple of them so you can see a couple comparative things. I never looked at that little footnote. Guess what the little footnote says? It says this. In Hebrew, it's really the adversary. It's not the, the proper name. Can study Bibles be helpful? Yeah, we got a couple great ones that we encourage you to look at there in the lobby. Now, after the fact, we know that this is Satan. They're trying to be helpful in the English translation. But if you would have read it in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, it wouldn't have said Satan, proper name. It would have just said the Satan, the meaning the adversary. The adversary. We still don't know much about him at this point if we're just starting in the beginning and working from there. We don't learn much about the Satan until Jesus of Nazareth appears. And then we learn he's the father of lies. We learn that he comes to steal, to kill, and to what? To destroy. All of which, all of which is anchored where? In Genesis. All of that, all of it is anchored in Genesis. Let's go back to our text, verses 2 through 3. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, some, several of my commentaries, they frame this as the serpent is saying, Look what God said. I directly refute that. But one of my commentaries said it's more nuanced than that. A scholar who I referenced last week, he's named John Walton. He points out, that the serpent builds off not of God's answer, but of Eve's response. He builds off of Eve's response. And the quote, negative particle precedes both verb forms, thus negating the absolute infinitive. So there you go, right? <laughs> His point in even talking like that, he said, this serpent is crafty. This serpent is just distorting things little bits at a time. This serpent is finding every way he can to find our vulnerabilities and to just twist things a little bit. And as he tempts the woman down this dangerous path, he says two things that careful listeners would catch. 
First, he says, when you eat it. When you eat it. Implying that abstinence is not an option. When you eat it. Secondly, he says, when you eat it, you're going to be like who? You're going to be like God. You're going to be like God, and you'll know good and evil. Here is why that is such a tragedy. Whose image does she already bear? God's. She is already like God. And she knows in this case what is good and evil. Why? Because God has revealed it to her. When you make a choice that contradicts God's word, whose image do you bear? Not God's. Absolutely. All right, let's go to verse 6. Verse 6. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. All right, if you can leave this on just for a second, leave this on the screens. Um, in Genesis 1, back in Genesis 1, we saw something that was repeated over and over again. And that something was God saw and it was what? Good. And it, God saw and it was good. And God saw and it was good. This was written, what we just read here, this was written so that we can see, so that we can see what happens when we trust our own perspective instead of trusting the perspective of the God who sees. When we trust our own perspective, when something really looks good or it seems right in our eyes, and we don't trust the God who sees. I came across this great quote in one of the commentaries I looked at this week. It says, in drawing a parallel between the woman's seeing and God's seeing, the author submits a graphic picture of the limits of human wisdom. And by doing so, highlights the tragic irony of the fall. Isn't that a powerful phrase? Tragic irony. This is a tragic irony. Well, have you ever seen the Pirates of the Caribbean the movie? All right. What happened right here, what we just read, this is like when the medallion touches the water and boom, the ripples go out to the rest of the world. What happened here affected every person, every inch of our planet when sin comes in. It affected everything. And here's the tragic irony of it all. Next slide. Satan and his minions, they enter the world only because Adam allowed them to. Allowed him to. We could go off on this important direction for the rest of the time. We just don't have time to. But hear this. Be careful about what you let into your home. Be careful what you let into your mind. Be careful what you let into your life. Be careful. Be careful. All right, well, that brings us to the first of three takeaways that we're going to look at from Genesis 3. There's a place to write this down in your notes. Takeaway number one from what we're reading here is that sin is more than a mistake. Sin is more than a mistake. It has a boom effect. Last Sunday, I made the point that nothing affects everything like leadership. Humanity was given great stewardship, leadership over this planet. When humanity made the decision to obey the serpent, they betrayed their creator. It was an act of rebellion that affected everything that had been placed in their care, which was pretty much everything. 
As the narrative of Scripture unfolds, at least three Hebrew words are used to describe the three forms that our brokenness takes. There's sin, there's transgression, there's iniquities. You see these three different words in Hebrew. You see corresponding words in Greek as all these authors are testifying to saying sin is more than a mistake. The website that we highlight at the bottom of your green sheet um, has three great videos, one for each of those words. They're short, they're five minutes, they're animated. I put a link in last week's ECC mail. Some of you took a look at that. I'll put it again in this email. Look at that. Look at those words. Each one captures one facet of what sin is, and they're really well done. They're found in Bible, um, thebibleproject.org. .org. It affects everything. Well, some of those... Some of those um, effects were felt right away. Let's look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. Sin begins with a temptation to be like God, to choose a path that looks good to us. But how often does that path lead to us being what? Ashamed and feeling that guilt. We want to hide the truth. We want to cover up and we want to blame others. Verses 8 through 10. When they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Your Bible might have a footnote on this passage too. That word translated as sound in verse 8, it's often associated with thunder. That word sound is often associated with thunder. And the cool of the day, the cool of the day can refer to a storm. So this could be God's walking in the garden in the morning whistling a merry tune. And Adam hides. It could also be Adam hears thunder for the first time. He sees dark clouds rolling in for the first time. And a chill comes over him. And he hides. Adam attempted to hide himself from the God who sees. Think of the irony there. Verses 11 through 15. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam blames Eve. He blames God. Eve blames the snake. And I was thinking about this. Isn't that our impulse? That is our impulse even today. We feel threatened. We feel afraid. We feel like we made a mistake. We blame. We blame. We blame. Think how different the world would be if instead of pointing out, we look first at the log in our own eyes, right? Before we looked at the speck in another's. Well, God holds each individual responsible for their part. He doesn't go into that blame thing. And each is cursed in the order that they transgressed, beginning with the serpent. Picking up verses 14 through 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, of the dust you shall eat of the days of your life. I will put enemy between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Verse 1 of chapter 3 declared the serpent more crafty. Now God declares it more cursed. Here's another great quote I came across this week. The triune God 
who brought a cosmos out of chaos and both out of nothing will not abandon creation to Satan and his minions. Can I get an amen to that? The demonic unraveling of creation will not be the last word. Within the curse is a cryptic prophecy that one day a wounded victor will finally defeat evil at its source. The serpent will strike, but ultimately will be crushed. Verses 16 through 21 say this. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he'll rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let me just see if we yeah, we'll go through 21 here. The man called his wife, or man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments made of what? Skins, remember that, and clothed them. God's words of judgment are immediately followed by signs of hope. And signs of grace. Adam gives his wife the name Eve, which means life giver. And God provides the couple. He meets them first. He meets the couple in their guilt and their shame. And then he provides. He provides clothes to cover them. And that's not all. I never saw grace in these closing Verses of chapter 3 before. One of the sources I looked at had an interesting, interesting take. Let me read the verses, then we'll give you the take. Here's how chapter 3 closes out. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, here's the guy's take on this. This is cryptic. This would take a month to just unpack just that, that passage here. But the guy's take was this. He said, what if Adam and Eve had eaten from that tree of life in a fallen state? That's an interesting take. And what if all of humanity was then destined to live forever in a sin-filled state? That's an interesting take. I don't know how, much, how far you can go with that, but what I can say with far greater confidence is this. There's a place to write this down in your notes. A second takeaway from Genesis chapter 3, and that is reconciliation is costly. This one I can say with conviction. Reconciliation is costly. If someone burns your house down, someone needs to absorb the cost if your house is to be re rebuilt. You can't just say, I'm sorry, and it gets rebuilt. There's a cost. There's a debt that must be paid. Reconciliation is costly. And from the beginning, God reveals that he cares for his creation. Exactly. And he's willing to sacrifice on our behalf. Who provided the new clothes for Adam and Eve? It was God. And those clothes were costly. Something had to die for those clothes to be made. 
Something died to cover their guilt and shame. And that is a big deal. Please write this down. At the foot of the cross, or I should say the foot, the foot of the cross is anchored to the bedrock of Genesis. The foot of the cross is anchored to the bedrock of Genesis. What we see here in Genesis about something dying so that others may have their sins covered What we see here in Genesis foreshadows animal sacrifices that we see as the narrative unfolds. And those sacrifices foreshadow what? The cross of Jesus Christ. Another sacrifice that was far costlier. In the fullness of time, the word that was with God, the word that was God in the beginning became flesh and walked among us. And where the first man, Adam, failed, Jesus of Nazareth passed the test. I found so many great quotes this week. Here's another. It's God's word that made us. Is it any wonder that his word should sustain us? All right, I got to show you something. I want to encourage you, please take out this quickly, this yellow insert. Many trees died to bring this to you, as I said last week. So please take this home and look at it. We did that so that we don't have to go through a lot of it today, but I want to draw your attention to this. The Bible reveals something very interesting near the very end. Scripture refers to Jesus like this in Revelation 13, 8. They refer to Jesus as the lamb who was slain from when? From the creation of the world. This was not a knee-jerk reaction to a world in trouble. This was part of God's foresight and plan all along. And the reason I've got this yellow sheet here, the reason we want to encourage you to look at this is you see the Bible open with God in eternal glory. It ends with God in eternal glory. And who's there with him? His people. His people. With him in eternity. In a non-fallen state. What event makes that reality possible? This beautiful hand-drawn cross, right? The cross of Jesus Christ. Please write this down. Fallen lords need a risen Savior. And they have one. Fallen lords have a risen Savior. We have a living hope. We were created to care for this world and everything in it. Every one of us bear the image of God and bear the responsibility to represent him well. Knowing from the foundation of the world that we would fall short, God made a way. He made a way to pay our debt. He made a way to cover our shame. And I want to close this morning with this invitation. And I wish, I tried so hard, but I wish I could have better words. I Holy Spirit, help people understand what I'm trying to say here. Our invitation to pray, our invitation to pray without ceasing, it's an invitation to walk with God again. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, we're given this, this instruction to pray without ceasing. And I've, so often I've struggled with that. I think I understand it a little bit more each day. It's about walking with God. It's about going through our day, not like this. It's like going through a day like this aware of his presence, aware of his guidance, aware and attuned of when we're hearing a voice that is not his and asking questions. It's walking with God. Doing that brought me peace last Saturday. There was so much that was so good about that day on the farm, but I'll be honest, it was really hard. 
And it was really hard. Because my own family never got to experience that. And everywhere I looked, I had all these memories, childhood memories. My girls never got to experience what it's like to go search for the baby kittens that the cats had up in the hayloft. My kids never got a chance to go into the stalls. I can picture my girls going in there with the sheep and just to snuggle with a sheep. might sound really weird to you city kids, but man, it's just cool. It's really cool. They never got to fly out of the field in our plane with their grandpa Roger or ride in the back of his 1930s fire truck. Never got a chance to go into the woods and pick a Christmas tree and then come back and celebrate Christmas on the farm or to ride our homemade zip line or spend a night in the cabin that my father built in the woods. Everywhere I turned, there was a memory. Why, God? Why? But God met me on that walk. We can walk with God, you guys. He met me on that walk. And he walked with me. And he whispered. He whispered this. There's a day coming when you're going to be welcomed home. There's a day coming when your kids are welcomed home. And this It's just going to be a shadow. It's just going to be a shadow. The best days in this life are dim reflections of what's to come. And as we're leaving the farm, I was able to have a moment with David, the new owner. And we were able to look at one another. And both of us got it. It was as if the Holy Spirit had been speaking to him too during this time. We could look at each other and we could shake hands. And we both acknowledged it wasn't the Studensky farm. It's not the Bonham's farm now. We're stewards. We're all just stewards for a season. Something that really doesn't belong to us. There's a God who made a way. He made a way for us to experience a peace which surpasses all understanding. We are not in Eden anymore. Can I get an amen to that? We all know this. We're not. Everywhere we go, there's brokenness. And God has made a way for you to walk with him. In fact, his invitation is even more than that. How often do we forget we can ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which comes and we become temples. So much of the language in Genesis 1, it's as if the world is his temple and God comes and he sits and he rests in it. And then there's a, there's a tabernacle that he comes and his presence is there. And there's a temple later that comes and his presence is there. The Holy Spirit can come in you right now. A temple of the Holy Spirit. And think how we need that today. When we don't understand to have God's presence living and dwelling in us. When we feel pain. When we're tempted. When we fall. When we need wisdom and guidance and strength. When we feel alone. When we are alone. When it seems like everyone else is going another way. We have a living hope. A living hope. One who went and died the death that we should have died. One who didn't stay dead. He rose again. We're heirs to that promise. I want to invite the worship band to come up and seal this time with a song. And as they do, let's pray. Let's receive this now. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for we have sinned. There's not one among us. Not one among us. Even if we don't believe in the Christian definitions of sin, there's not a person in this room, there's not a person in this room, if they're honest, that can't come up with countless ways 
where we've fallen short, where we've transgressed, where we've got areas of iniquity. Father, forgive us for we've sinned. Humans have been entrusted like no other creature on this planet with opportunities and possibilities and responsibilities. And Lord, as Adam, as Eve, we've fallen short. And Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace that is present from the beginning of this book to the end. Life itself was a gift. This world was a gift. And even when, even in the midst, while we were still sinners, you clothe us, you care for us, and you invite us to come and be fully yours, to walk with you again. Holy Spirit, I pray right here right now that people would open themselves up to you for the first time or the first time again and look to you, look to your sacrifice. Thank you for it and invite the presence of your Holy Spirit to now come in and change us and lead us and renew us and guide us that we may walk with you as we walk forth from this place. Thank you, God. Help us now to express, express the wonder of what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.